we know what we're going to do with that. So let's <laughs> skip on. Just cut to some music and uh, play the interview. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun, 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 or Rue doing... No, not, not that music. I love it. So welcome back to Random But Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news and some very special guests. That little duet has to be in, <laughs> in the show at some point. Of course. It's like, uh, it's like the Titanic theme playing on that recorder really badly. <laughs> oh. So I, I think one of the biggest important things to address is that we have an early access out. We do. It's very exciting. It is exciting. It kind of points towards some of our design direction, some of our product direction, some of our development direction. There's been really good feedback, some of it negative, some of it very positive, and some of it believing that this is the final version and that <laughs> there aren't any changes to make from this point. But it's called an early access because it is early. And I think that's the one thing, like, we've got a load of revisions. Like, my to-do list is so long to make design tweaks to this thing that I should not be doing the podcast. <laughs> and I'm sure, Rue, your to-do list looks longer than mine. Yes. Yeah. Quit wasting time, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is definitely like there's definitely a lot to do on this to make it a great Mac app. It's very interesting to sort of see the community responses. And this is the third desktop platform that we've pushed this product out to. And just to see how each of the different communities responded, the Apple community certainly had the strongest reaction, which I think that we knew going into it. But yeah, we got some work to do. Like that's all that this comes down to. Yeah. And it's it's a bunch of change, right? It's different technologies. It's different design paradigms. It's adding things in that if you use kind of one password individually and, and not for the sharing, which is kind of our unique point when everything seems to be growing a, a password manager as, as like a thing on the side, sharing and that kind of control over your accounts is the thing that we need to move into as a business. And like this app is so good at some of that stuff, telling you how many people there are added to a vault, telling you where an item is, right? So you don't accidentally share something in the in the wrong place. And we've got so many refinements planned for those type of activities it's really nice to see oh yeah so we should discuss some of the the you know kind of large paradigm changes that we've made with with one password eight they haven't been the the center of feedback so i'm assuming a lot of people have kind of naturally glided into the things that we've user tested and designed in a way that we're hoping that they do but one of the big things is that categories now sit as kind of a filter on the top of your list giving vaults more priority so for us this was like a natural thing you know vaults are treated largely as folders and and kind of shared folders so you know you make as many as you need to to organize things and then when you start organizing things into vaults it didn't make a whole bunch of sense to then limit the views of those things to be like you can only put passwords in this area and so I'm really excited. You know, I, I have a bunch of vaults that are the way that I want to organize things. And the type of information that I put in those things, it shouldn't really dictate what I see, right? So 
it might be a bit of an adaption for some people, but I'm I'm really excited. I'm with you there. Like I love the cleanliness of sort of the I guess you could call it the data hierarchy if I look at it in a very technical way. I feel like we've we've cleaned that up quite a bit and it's a lot more clear now. I'm hoping that as a result, we see a higher adoption of vaults. People should start using vaults more because it's a little, I think it's a little bit clearer. Categories being a filter, I think makes good sense. I mean, we've been living with this for a year now, so we're pretty ingrained in this this way of working. But I also have not found it to have a lot of friction, so I, I like that. Tags are also sort of first-class citizens on the side here, which is cool uh, if, you're, if you're big into tags. This is the one thing where we use a test now because we have so many users, and, and this was the one thing that you know was a decision born of that. But man, I don't use tags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't use them as much as I feel like I should. Yeah, I, I don't either. On the mobile app that we're building on top of the same platform, one of the early versions of this screen, you can actually turn off tags like you could just modify this that screen to say like oh, i don't want to see these things like you could turn off tags and vaults and i was like oh i don't want to see tags and i just you know i turned them off which is nice i like that but in the desktop app one of the other things that we've added is this concept of vault collections or I, we might just be calling them collections now and as someone who is has a family account and a team account a business account added to one password i have a lot of vaults that I have access to, many of which contain data I just don't care about day to day. And so collections gives you that way of sort of forming your own view of your data. So I have a, a collection that I call Daily Driver. I think it's the best name that could possibly be. I suggest you use it as well. And it contains my the vault I share with my wife, my estate planning vault, and like my personal work vault. And that's it. And Everything else is just hidden from view. And I, when I search for my Apple ID, I don't get 400 hits for test Apple IDs that exist in one of my 1Password vaults when we're doing testing in-app purchases and stuff. It's a nice touch that sort of lets me personalize the app even more. Mine's called Primary. And I think that was because... You're boring. When we were oh. naming the... <laughs> we, we were naming the initial vault that you get. We jumped from personal to private. And I remember that there was an issue added around there that someone wanted to name it primary. <laughs> I mean, personally, I think it's a, a bad name for a, a personal vault. But like, it's really difficult <laughs> because what are you going to name the second one? Secondary. Secondary. Yeah. And then I, I started doing it. And all of my playlists in Spotify are like that now. Primary, secondary, tertiary. <laughs> <laughs> None of them being descriptive about what it does. I've 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 caught this bug. What's number ten called? I don't. Know. Uh, who knows? I was listening to uh, one of my one of my favorite podcasts. It's a daily podcast. It's called The Morning Stream, and the host on there was talking about how he and his wife and his kids all have different names for their iPhones. And like, I want this level of creativity in my life and I don't have it. Like, he's like, my iPhone is called the Duke. Like if you, <laughs> if you airdrop to it, it's like, it's called the Duke on the network. Excellent. And I'm just like, God, like my iPhone is called Michael's iPhone. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Mine's called Anna's iPhone. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Mine are all, oh God, I'm going to sound like such a nerd. <laughs> That's okay. Is it primary, secondary, tertiary? Oh, no. It's even worse. Oh. No. Names of treants from Lord of the Rings. Oh, it's even <laughs> worse. Oh, treants. That's excellent. <laughs> they are ships from Battlestar Galactica, 
Uh, so the my iPhone is uh, one of the smaller ships, and then my MacBook is one of the bigger ships. Oh, nice. Oh, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah, so uh, 1Password 8 for Mac is now in early access. Uh, please take it with a pinch of salt that it will get better. We're constantly working on these things. And as always, feedback is absolutely welcome. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think uh, we've spoken about our own stuff enough. Let's jump on to some Watchtower Weekly. Let's do it. The big topic this week is that Apple's controversial plan to curb child sexual abuse imagery reported by a bunch of places, but The Verge is the one where we've taken some notes. And when Apple announced the changes it plans to make to iOS devices in an effort to help curb child abuse by finding child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, parts of its plan generated a bit of backlash. So first, it's rolling out an update to its search app, Siri Voice Assistant on iOS 15, Watch OS 8, iPad OS 15, and Mac OS Monterey. When a user searches for topics related to child sexual abuse, Apple will redirect the user to resources for reporting CSAM or getting help for an attraction to such content. But it's Apple's other two CSAM plans that have garnered criticism. So one update will add a parental control option to messages, sending an alert to parents if a child aged 12 or younger views or sends sexually explicit images and obscuring the images for any users under 18. The one that's proven most controversial is Apple's plan to scan on-device images to find CSAM before the images are uploaded to iCloud reporting them to Apple's moderators who can then then in turn hand the images over to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In the case of a potential match, Apple says the feature will protect users while allowing the company to find illegal content. Many Apple critics and, and privacy advocates say the provision is basically a security backdoor, a contradiction to Apple's long-professed commitment to user privacy. So that's kind of the, the, the basics of it. As I see, there are essentially two sides to this complicated argument, right? There are probably more, but I'm boiling them down to, to two sides. The first one is, in the scanning of these images, Apple could essentially make a mistake and claim that your picture is something that it isn't and hand you over to some people who are going to be interested in why you have an image that it thinks is bad on your phone. That I can completely see is a terrifying police action. You can get in trouble for essentially taking a picture and an algorithm decides whether you're in trouble or not. I, I completely get that, that kind of fear. CSAM scanning is effectively done on all major platforms. So Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, Reddit, Discord, Dropbox, OneDrive, Google services... A huge amount of them. Apple is actually doing it on device as is their usual approach because it's complicated with end-to-end -end encryption, right? A service can't scan files they can't decrypt. So, for example, WhatsApp have said that they do scan unencrypted images for, for known CSAM, though they can't scan encrypted images. They've said that they won't adopt Apple's system. They actually said it's the wrong approach and a setback for people's privacy all over the world. The other side of this is that this is a huge protection. It is scanning on devices. The other part of the argument to come down on is, of course, what if Apple used this technology and used this approach to then scan this for other content? And largely, the privacy 
and security industry have come down on that end of the argument of like, if Apple start using this for anything in, in other countries, this becomes a, a larger issue. Now, at the moment, this is only launching in the US. But say this launches in a country where something that we think is a totally okay thing, they don't. And they start scanning imagery for that thing. It, it all gets a, a little bit big brother, right? It's a really kind of difficult thing to discuss because it is protecting against something that absolutely needs to be there. Like this needs to exist. We're just looking at it in a way that is really difficult to talk about because encryption means that it no one else has access to that thing. And essentially this is kind of like something that exists on your device scanning your personal stuff. Yeah. yeah, and I imagine this would have caused a lot of disruption at Apple internally as well. It probably wouldn't have been an easy decision for them to make. And they were weighing up a lot of the pros and cons just as much as we all are from the outside. They would have been just as conflicted, I think. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, this is a this is such a tough one because this is a tough line for Apple to walk on the face of it, working against a system where children are exploited is absolutely the right thing to do. The concerns I have around this are not related to that whatsoever. It's very much the applications of this type of thing in the future. Could this be mobilized against opposing political groups that a group in power is saying those are terrorists when they're actually freedom fighters and stuff like that. You know, I think that, that that's the sort of stuff that this technology could be used for, for good or for ill. And I worry that like once it's out in the world, it gets harder to keep it from being used for, for ill. I'm going to trust that this is going to be handled as well as it possibly can be. I'll say, I'll say a thing that if anyone's going to get this right, I think Apple will get this right because privacy and security are so ingrained in their culture. Yeah. I guess my concern then is this now sets a precedent for others that may not handle these things quite as delicately as Apple do. Uh, true, yeah. Although this type of scanning is done on many other platforms already, like big platforms. So it's it's not like they're trailblazing here. They're almost catching up. Yeah. I think everything like this is always a balance, right? It is, of course, we have to protect children right yes right but also you know protecting privacy and in this case those two are kind of at odds of each other slightly and, and i think it's just finding the right balance uh so this next one as a palate cleanser t-mobile has had another breach not surprisingly this is covered by wired as first reported by mother in, uh, not my mother-in-law <laughs> as first uh, as first reported by motherboard uh, which I wrongly said mother-in-law for some reason. <laughs> Someone on the dark web claims to have obtained the data of 100 million people from T-Mobile's servers and is selling a portion of it on the underground forum for six Bitcoin. What's that these days? About 200, 300,000? If the data's legitimate, uh, this would be T-Mobile's sixth known breach Ooh. in four years. Take a moment I to know, appreciate right? that. <laughs> They must have so many servers that, like, this just... They, they must be getting fined at 
all angles because mm. of this as well. Yeah. God. The trove not only includes, includes names, phone numbers, and physical addresses, but also more sensitive data like social security numbers, driving license information, IMEI numbers, unique identifiers attached to each mobile device. Motherboard confirms that samples of the data contained accurate information on T-Mobile customers. This is basically rife for using phone numbers and names to send out SMS-based phishing messages uh, that are crafted in a way that are a little bit more believable. And that comes from the Director of Threat Intelligence at email security company Abnormal Security. A A database that ties more PII together along with identifying someone's carrier and fixed information makes it much easier to convince someone to click on a link that advertises, you know, um, an upgrade for T-Mobile customers and, and, and so on. So this is like, you know, this is another angle in which I wouldn't like to be a T-Mobile customer. (laughs) (laughs) If you are a T-Mobile customer, you, you have a few limited steps that you can take to protect yourself uh, or at least limit the potential fallout. Uh, first of all, change your T-Mobile password and security pin. Uh, as for stopping SIM swap attacks, there's not much you can do against a, a determined attacker. But a good first step is is using an app-based authentication instead of having codes sent to you by a text message. Is there any that you would recommend here, Matt? Uh, oh, yeah. Adding one password. And oh, if yeah. you're using the version 8 early access, there's a lot <laughs> easier way to add TOTP codes to a login, which is great. Instant plug. <laughs> <laughs> so this next one, a masked vigilante. I think the word vigilante here is wrong on TikTok, is disclosing the identities of trolls, saying they can find someone's real identity in seven to eight clicks. This one's from insider.com. So a a vigilante group on TikTok said it's searching the platform for trolls and disclosing their identities in short clips to expose them to their parents and employees. The group goes by the name The Great Londini. What are we thinking? Like a three out of ten for that? Yeah. (laughs) I forgot about the, the, the rating system for names. And it's represented by a mask with a hollow pitch black eyes and a gaping joker like smile as all pleasant things are. The group has a website, Twitter account, and a YouTube page where it posts examples of what it's said and what it's capable of doing. It also has 2.3 million followers on TikTok. In one example, the great Londini outed a man it said is a lawyer and who posted a comment telling a young police officer to eat his gun. Would you hire a lawyer that made this comment about a police officer? Neither would we. So what should we do? We say stupid games, stupid prize. Yikes. Hmm. In an interview with the BBC, a man going by the name Leo spoke for the group. He explained that it was simply the face of a group of volunteers with cybersecurity and military experience who want to be collectively known under a single name. The group said its collective experience allows it to uncover someone's real identity, whether or not they hide behind an anonymous account name within seven to eight clicks. Leo calls himself an anti-troll. Mm. Mm. <laughs> are, are they just trolling more? Trolls fighting trolls, right? D- d- does this help? Well, no engagement with a troll really ever helps, does it? It's just fighting abuse with more abuse, really, isn't it? Yeah. TikTok is not a fan of Londini, uh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Leo said that the BBC uh, told the BBC that the app deleted nine accounts associated with a great Londini username. The app also suspended the 10th and current account using account multiple times for online harassment and bullying. Claims that the group contests. Well, you know, 
they're, they're bullying bullies, I think, is the is the differential to make there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it is vigilantism then, really, isn't it? Troll-based vigilantism. I mean, the mask looks like some sort of V for Vendetta doesn't it? But instead of blowing up Parliament, they're just blowing up TikTok, which, while theatrical, you know, I don't think it's the revolution that they think it is. <laughs> it seems like they think quite highly of themselves. Yeah. Mm. Lots of me grunting in this uh, <laughs> in this story. <laughs> Dropping by for a chat today is Karen Renault. Karen is a computer scientist, researcher, and professor working on all aspects of human-centered security and privacy. She is particularly interested in deploying behavioral science techniques to improve security and encouraging end-user privacy-preserving behaviors. She recently contributed to the Wall Street Journal with a deep dive into what keeps people from using password managers. Welcome to the show, Karen. You are the perfect guest, I think. How are you doing? I'm great, and thank you for having me. A great opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah, I mean, my, my role at 1Password is investigating all the things that stops people using password managers and trying to encourage them all throughout the process of trying to use 1Password in the best way that they can. I am fairly new to behavioral science mm -hmm. and using those techniques in, in security. There's a sort of a glass ceiling of password manager usage that sort of seems to have stabilized over the last few years with not more people taking it up, which is really interesting for us as a research problem to try to figure out how to improve that rate. Yeah, I mean, the interesting balance is obviously, we've obviously seen huge growth recently, and mm -hmm. I still do see that. There is a, a technical ability glass ceiling that it is very hard to break through. One of the things that we find is having a champion, right? Having someone that won't say imposes a password manager on you, but I want to <laughs> like, you know, someone that, <laughs> that, that champions it, it either in the household or in the business. Mm -hmm. I think for some people, it becomes very kind of second nature to, to have a password manager. But do you find that you know, people want privacy and security when it comes to our data, or do we just kind of default to the easy option? No, I don't think so. I think that people have an intuitive need for privacy. So we know that we value privacy. If you look at, if I asked you to give me your mobile phone and unlock it so I can fiddle around on it, you're probably not going to do that because that's very private. And I wouldn't give you mine either. And so we know what an invasion of privacy looks like. But the research tells us that people struggle to articulate what privacy actually means to them. And so because they can't articulate it, and this is an age-old problem, you can go back to the 1930s, people were writing about this already, even in before the cyber era. Because we don't know how to articulate what it means to us and what our rights are in that area, we don't really know how to preserve our privacy online. And with respect to security, we know how to keep ourselves and our belongings secure. We've watched our parents as we grow up, lock the front door at night, lock the car doors. So it becomes part of us and we know how to do that. But the online world is so new and such a different domain that a lot of people don't understand the threats because they're invisible. Where if somebody's coming to try and break into your house, it's a physical thing and you, you can see it happening. Where online, the, the threats happen, they compromise you and you sometimes don't even know that it's happened. So... I think people are intimidated as well by all the new things everybody keeps throwing at them about the things they should do in an area where they don't have enough expertise just yet. So as a society, this is going to build. I'm sure in 20 or 30 years, everyone's going to know this stuff. But we're in a transition period where people are not too sure about what's going on online at the moment. 
So do they care? Yes. Do they know what to do about it? Probably not yet. The interesting thing is it's not just concerns around new areas, but it's concerns around like entirely new products and things that you Mm. didn't have to worry about before you now do. Like my washing machine now connects to the internet. I'm terrified of that. (laughs) And even a few years ago, I wouldn't have had to be. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So a lot of companies in the in the security and privacy industry they do concentrate on fear as a motivator to do these actions what do you think about kind of fear as a strategy for making us care more about security or privacy practices so fear is one of those tools that people use intuitively they think it's going to work it's going to obviously work because we take care of not to get hurt by things that we fear but a lot of the time intuitive use of a tool is not necessarily the right use so i'm going to give you two examples from medicine i think medicine is a very ancient field has a lot to teach us about human behavior and the kinds of ways that people have tried to control human behavior so Medicine, I'm not criticizing them. They, you know, they do wonderful things, but they sometimes did things wrong in the past. So we can learn from that. So in the old days, not even that long ago, maybe 150 years ago, they used to bleed people and they bled people for a wide range of ailments. They even bled people who had cholera and because they were already dehydrated, they would die. It is surmised that George Washington died from being excessively bled during his last illness. Think about, you know, so he apparently caught pneumonia or something and they just kept bleeding him and the poor man died. Another example comes from stomach ulcers. So it made intuitive sense to almost the entire world's doctors that bacteria could not survive in the human stomach. And so when these two Australian doctors came along and said, no, stomach ulcers are actually caused by bacteria, they all said, no, intuitively, this is completely wrong. Well, those two Australian doctors were correct. And they proved it by one of them actually gave themselves a stomach ulcer by drinking bacteria. So back to the use of fear. We should always mistrust our intuitions until we've proven that something is efficacious. So myself and Mark Dupois from the University of Washington, we carried out an extensive review of the literature two years ago and discovered that the use of fear is actually quite hard to get right. So, for example, if you make people too fearful, they're likely to just refuse to engage with you altogether because they can't cope with the feeling. And that's called fear control. What you want them to do is danger control is basically deal with the issue by putting protective measures in place. But they don't do that if you make them too scared. And if you give them too little fear, they're going to just shrug it off. So you have to elicit medium levels of fear. That makes the instrument quite hard to kind of target because you don't know how anxious people are already. You don't know how many other fear appeals they've been targeted by. And over the last year and a half, the entire world has been afraid of the COVID virus. So, you know, they're already at a heightened stage of fear. Now you're targeting them with a cyber fear appeal. We also noticed that for many people, the recommended action, so whenever somebody does a fear appeal, they make you afraid and then they tell you what to do. But a lot of people could not carry out the recommended action. So some people just didn't have the self-efficacy. They just couldn't do it. They didn't have the confidence. They didn't have the skills. But other people didn't have the opportunity. This is really interesting. So, for example, you can tell somebody, if you don't update your phone, it's going to get compromised. And so you must update whenever your phone says it needs to update. Okay. But what about if there's not enough memory on that phone? Then they don't actually have the opportunity to do what you're telling them to do. People don't think about those kinds of constraints. They just think one measure is going to work for everybody. So I think we also then tested the use of fear in other empirical experiments and discovered that it's like a coercion thing. People will do things that you are making them do through fear, but you get a very long-term negative emotional response that will then color all their interactions 
with that particular protective measure. And that negative emotions are a bad idea in this game. So a much better idea, long story, is to build self-efficacy, right? So teach, show, make sure that people know how to do things. Instead of making them scared and not being sure they can do things when they're left with that fear that they can't assuage in some way. So you build that efficacy and then you make sure that you remove the barriers that are preventing them from engaging in the action you want them to take. So it's more of an empowering approach than a fear-driven approach. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it as well. I've worked specifically in security and privacy around password managers for nine plus years now. And even me, there are some things that like I read in the news and I instantly just want to close my MacBook and dig a hole and put it in, right? Like there are just things that I react to in a way that I know doesn't solve the problem, but defers it because almost in some instances, there isn't a solution. Yes. It's very tricky, but it does seem to be a a heavy hammer uh, <laughs> when when something needs like a very fine touch approach. Yes. We have a saying in my part of the world that it's like using a cannon to kill a mosquito. <laughs> it's like totally the wrong tool. Do you think there are other kind of bad habits that we fall into that perhaps, you know? So the obvious one is password choices. This is the one we're talking about. It leads to many compromises by hackers. There's no getting away from that. People choose weak passwords. What is the barrier, right? The barrier is the difficulty of remembering them. We have too many. We can't possibly, the human brain is designed to remember between five and six nonsense strings. And then you get people making you change passwords all the time as well. So you can't remember them. So people cope by choosing weak passwords. So you, you can't target the behavior instead until you understand what's causing the behavior. So obviously, use a password manager. You take the memory problem away, then they will use stronger passwords. And I know a lot of people who, once they start using a password manager, they say, oh my goodness, why didn't I do this before? It just takes all the pain away. So much simpler. It is a hump that you have to get past. Mm -hmm. There is a bar to jump over. Yes. One of the things that I always hear, usually when I say I work for 1Password, is that someone has a system. Yes. And I think that's, you know, a way that someone comes up with to both feel secure, right? Because, you know, mm -hmm. no one can beat their system. And it's another way to, to kind of get over the, the memory aspect. One of the things that I, I do always find where a system breaks down that someone has is in the element of a data breach where you have to change the password for a specific service. And I think the issue then is that you either change all of your passwords, so all of your system every mm -hmm. time that there's a, a, mm -hmm. a data mm -hmm. breach, or you add some kind of one to the end of it or add a numerical increment to it mm -hmm. and then you obviously have to manage the memory aspect of where a password is in its life how many times have you changed it yes so yeah i think there are some things that people balance the aspect of memory the interesting aspect of that is i wonder whether it's an aspect of control as well whether with a system they feel like they are more secure, they are remembering it themselves. Mm -hmm. Is there an aspect of control there, do you think? It might be. And somebody once said to me they didn't want to use a password manager because he felt he was training his memory by trying to memorize all his passwords, <laughs> which I thought was kind of cool, really, wanting to be a better person or trying to train yourself. But he said that he had a system that he dared anybody to break. But the nice thing for him was that he and his wife – knew the algorithm they were using, so she didn't have to tell him what passwords, that he knew what the password would be for any system. 
But, you know, life for me is, is too short to spend it remembering nonsense strings. I'd much rather use my, my bandwidth to do more interesting things. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about that is that if enough were compromised in data breaches and linked back to an email address, you could probably work backwards. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I was speaking uh-huh. to a, an old friend of mine, and, and again, the aspect of me working for 1Password came up. He said, you know, oh, I've got a system, it's brilliant. And it was the footballer's name and the number that they played for when they played for that team. So it wasn't all current players, but there were enough. (laughs) Kind of had a memory palace of players. That's a lot of effort. But also, there's only a certain amount of players that, (laughs) you know, have played for a football team. And so the leaps and bounds that they were going over just to get to the point of remembering the password. Yes. I mean, passwords were not intended for multiple... I mean, I remember... I still remember my password when I was at university. You only had one. That was fine. I could remember that. Easy. And then suddenly over the last 20 years, it's just changed exponentially. It's incredible. What kind of research is there out there that kind of suggests strategies to persuade people to get past this psychological barrier or, you know, the user experience barrier of using a password manager? So a lot of people try to model people's security behaviors, and there's a number of theories that are used, but those theories don't really reflect existing practices and the difficulty of getting people to replace what they're doing. There's an effect called the endowment effect. This is some research I did when I spent some time in Mississippi, The endowment effect says that you value things that you own more than their actual monetary value. So if somebody gives me a coffee mug, for example, I'm going to value that coffee mug because it belongs to me. It's been given to me. It's mine. And if you tell me, well, that coffee mug's probably only worth two pounds, I will say no, but actually to me it's worth five pounds. So it's about overvaluing things. Now, the research we did in Mississippi was we looked at people's password creation routines and we saw whether the endowment effect applied to that and they did. And so people felt that their passwords were stronger than they actually were because they had created them and they were attached to them and owned them. So once you understand that that emotional response, so if you criticize their passwords, they become defensive. And once you understand that you can't just parachute into somebody's life and say, the way you're doing passwords is all wrong, you must, you must now use a password manager. If you get that defensive response, you've already lost the argument. But what we did, myself and my PhD student did some work modeling it. And we used something called migration theory, which is a very interesting theory because when somebody emigrates, they're looking at the positive aspects of the country they want to go to. They're looking at the negative aspects of the country where they're in. But there are some other factors, so those are push and pull factors, but there are other factors called mooring factors. And these are factors that keep you where you are, despite you knowing the advantages of moving and knowing the disadvantages of staying. So we thought, well, what people have right now is the way they're creating their passwords. It might not be a particularly good way, but how do we then encourage them to use a password manager? Well, yes, you've got to give those pull factors saying, this is what a password manager can do for you. They already know probably that their passwords are weak, but you can emphasize that. But the mooring factors that we identified, there were two of them. The first one is real trust in the password manager. This is a huge thing. Password manager vendors know that they store passwords very securely, that the passwords cannot be leaked even if they have a breach. They know all this stuff. They're not communicating it on a level that I think the men and women in the street can get. So they don't trust it. People say to me, oh, they're going to get my whole life if it gets breached. Well, what about employers in the password manager companies? Now, I know password manager companies have thought about this 
and have built measures in so that this is not a threat, but the people out there that you want to persuade to use password managers are not understanding that. So that's your first thing. And the second thing is people saying, yeah, but I've got all my passwords stored in my browser. It's going to take far too much time to put it into the password manager. So that's a cost. So then it gets back to economics. People are looking at the benefit, but they're saying the cost is too big because the setup cost is so huge. And then, of course, people are also worried about forgetting their master password and losing their whole life online and having to then re recover hundreds of passwords. Some password managers do better than others at this, but if you address the mooring factors, you'd have a much better chance of getting people to adopt the password manager. The other interesting thing we found was that people always think that if something costs money, that's going to put people off. That was not one of the significant factors that we found. People actually didn't mind paying. It was more about the concern about how good the password manager was at ensuring that their passwords didn't get into some hacker's hands. Yeah, all, all that was <laughs> fascinating. I think it's the first time I've actually made notes in a podcast interview. <laughs> you know, there there are a lot of things that password managers can do to alleviate some of these stresses. Some of them mm -hmm. easier than others, but and you're also selling. I mean, you want you really want people like the senior citizens to use password managers because they're the ones who might struggle more with memory. And their biggest concern is losing the master password. So unless you give somebody a coping skill for that, something realistic that makes sense to them, they're going to be too scared to switch. These are things that people don't, you know, I think young people who maybe don't have memory problems don't actually put themselves in the shoes of people who have these concerns. Yeah, I, I mean, the creation of the password for the, the one password account, that is something that we have tailored over the years to be... Mm -hmm. You know, when we started out, I can remember the discussion, you know, this was the one password that they needed, right? We needed to hype this up. We needed to mm -hmm. generate it for them because like this was like how it was going to be secure and all of this type of thing. And gradually we've walked back from a lot of that thinking. And, you know, because we have things like the secret key in our security model, the important thing for us is that you use a password manager. It can be us, it can mm -hmm. be anybody if I'm frank, you know, but really just using one improves your security massively. So where our security model has the secret key, what we've done to that is is essentially removed some of the emphasis on that initial password. And I think the key there has been when a user lands on that page, it's no longer like, you know, how do I add three characters, a story arc and a fantasy novel to my password? But instead, let me just use the one for the moment that I'm using everywhere else. So I remember it and then I get, you know, all of my other passwords changed. And then perhaps later down the line, I can work on improving this one and, and remember something new. Moving to that ideal of making it something that someone can just remember and maybe their security as a whole isn't all hinged on it because of the secret key, I think has been a massive change for us. You can give people a strategy, right? So humans have a memory bump in their lives, which is around, starts at around 12, 13, and then it goes to sort of 26, 27. There are things in that part of your life that you will never forget. And luckily for us, many of the things that, like our addresses, our telephone numbers and things, or not on any database, because the database is only started later. So I personally used the telephone number that I had when I was 12 to get into my phone. There probably isn't anyone else on this planet who knows that telephone number. 
But people, even if you speak to people in their 70s or 80s, they can tell you what address they lived at when they were 15. So they can use those. They're never going to forget them, but nobody else will know those. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so wrapping stuff up, like what's your kind of favorite elevator pitch for password managers? Uh What are your things that you always recommend and and talk about in general? Well, if I were going to convince somebody in an elevator to use a password manager, I would say simply, you don't try to remember all your phone numbers. So it makes no sense to try to remember all your passwords. Your brain is not designed for this. Use the tools that are there to do this for you. Not just any password manager. Find one that convinces you that they will store your passwords securely. Then give it a try. You will never look back. That's what I would say in an elevator. The uh, the phone book aspect there is is really interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure I heard that one before. So uh, to finish up, where can people go to find out more about you and the research that you're doing? So my website is Karen Reno. So it's Karen spelt A-R-E-N, R-E-N-A-U-D dot com. There's a lot of research there on my publications list. I love to hear from people. I love to get feedback from folks to that really improves my research to try to understand where other people are coming from. So please do get in touch. My email address is also on that website. Perfect. And we'll link to all of those in the show notes. Thank you very much. So Anna, what about the 75th episode giveaway? Yeah, so just a note really to say that the giveaway is now closed and we're going through all the entries and um, we'll be announcing the winners on the next episode. Can I just make a small comment here? But what do you mean by now? Like, can I listen to this episode and still get something in or by the time that I listen to it, it's closed? So when this episode goes out, it will be closed. It's not yet closed. Right, okay. So if you haven't done it now, you've got no chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's technically still open for a week. But, okay. but not, not for you that's listening to this. Yeah, not for you. Right. If you're listening to this, it's closed. Me who's recording this, right. I still have a chance. You do. But you who's listening to this, you don't have a yeah. chance. Yeah. But you can't remember a single favorite moment. So you're not entering the giveaway, Matt. I mean, that is true. Anyone can still enter. Entries are still open but not if you're listening to the show right now. <laughs> yes, correct, yes. <laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Thanks for ruining the magic. Okay. Amazing. Can I, I just want to make a small comment about this. Uh, we've done a number of like write-ins and stuff on Twitter in the past, and this one feels like a turning point. I, I kind of feel like we've made it because now people are actually <laughs> sharing, like we're getting a lot of replies from folks telling us their, yeah. their favorite episodes. People are writing in via email. Like yeah. it's really cool. It's nice when they say nice things in general about the show as well. Always nice to get some feedback. It, it's also nice to hear that a lot of people's favorite moment of the show have been around when you can't do something <laughs> or that you mess something up, Bruce. <laughs> That's true. I think a lot of people enjoy watching you struggle yeah they love you loving the game or they love you hating the game yeah. but either way they they love you Aww, so well thank, thank you everybody lots of love out there we can both enjoy hating the next game because <laughs> this is the first time that i'm playing three word <gasps> password yes so now we get to see how good you are oh. put you on the spot here we go i have tried to make it a little easier this week because since our epic fail last week i feel like we needed a victory so fingers crossed you get this stop jumping in oh so sorry (laughs) (laughs) i'm so excited i love this game so much i i mm. okay so this is the single worst way to share a password we use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator so the first clue is a fabric woven of different colored yarns in a cross barred pattern 
often a woolen or flannel fabric worn over the left shoulder as part of the Scottish national costume. It is traditionally used for warmth and protection in the great outdoors. And I see you've both written an answer already. Sorry, we're in the we're in the show notes writing writing down the You're eager. I mean, so I, I said tweed, but I'm fairly certain that I know what it is and it's like that one's wrong. Is it is it tartan? I'm fairly certain it's done. It's the it's the Scottish national costume element that that makes so it hard, right? You're both wrong. <laughs> okay, all right. Is it gingham? It's not gingham. Gingham. It's not a tablecloth. Well, uh, listen. <laughs> I, I said I said tweed. It's not tweed. It's not tweed. It's not tartan, and it's not gingham. I'm going to give you two more guesses. Cashmere? <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't count. That's not a guess. That's a terrible one. What's Father Scottish National? Those are some classy Scotsmen right there wearing cashmere. <laughs> um, uh, what's over the left shoulder of a Scottish person? It's like that that uh, draped thing. <laughs> you know, it looks like a <laughs> looks like they've pinned a tea towel to a, a thing. Oof. Greg is just shouting in Scottish at us right now. <laughs> our, our coworker, Greg. I bet Greg would know what this is. Yeah, it's a sash. I can't right? believe we're not going to get this. One. Focus more on the pattern. Oh, yes, it, Matt. It is. It's a plaid. Played. Oh, it's plaid. I. Oh. It's yeah. plaid. 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 Yeah, plaid. That's what I said. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Well done. So moving on, we have Urban Dictionary describes this adjective as having an air of confidence, courtesy and intelligence, a stylish attitude, sophisticated with high self-esteem. I would say that James Bond or 007 has a lot of it. I said swagger, but I don't believe that that's it. It's close, but it's not swagger. I mean, I want to kind of say arrogance, but it's not that. (laughs) No. Confidence. Um... It's tumbleweed going on here. It's a good thing our podcast player cuts out silences. <laughs> I, I, mm. James Bond has a lot of it. You've ruined me by writing these in in advance. That's the problem, because now all I can think of is the thing that you said. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, don't delete it from the show notes. That's not going to help, is it? It's not a time machine. <laughs> time machine. Google Docs has versioning. That doesn't mean it versions me oh, as well. God. Can't go back and unsee it. It does begin with an S. Suave. It is suave. Oh my god! Listen to this guy. I feel like I'm giving you too much time to get these. You're really, no. you're really struggling, right? No, now. no, quiet. Not, the edit is going to make us sound amazing, so don't worry. The, mm, it's the intelligence thing. I think you can be suave and not have intelligence. Uh, no, take it up with Urban Dictionary, Matt. Okay. Okay, so final one. As the most easily manufactured mild acid, it has a variety of industrial and domestic uses. The making of this liquid may be as old as alcoholic brewing. The first documented evidence of its use was around 3000 BC. In East Asia, the Chinese began professionalising production in the Zhao dynasty. The book Zhao Li mentions many noble or royal households had a specialised worker making this and this alone. It is produced either by a fast or a slow fermentation process. I have an answer, but I want to give Matt a moment before I ruin him. <laughs> okay, a mild acid. Doesn't sound very nice, mm. does it? Is, is vinegar a mild acid or is it an alkali? Is this vinegar? Do you ferment vinegar? It is vinegar. Mm. You are correct. Fantastic, Matt. Was that what you were going to guess? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> no. Oh. So there we go. Played suave vinegar. Oh, I like that a lot. All right. Love you both. Love you lots. Love you bye. Right. Bye bye.